Welcome to another thought-provoking episode of Uncovering the Civil War, a podcast series that uncovers a deeper understanding of the American Civil War and Reconstruction and how they still affect us today. And now, here is your host, author of The Ones They Left Behind, Antonio El Male. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Uncovering the Civil War. Today, we're going to continue our discussion about the roles the Union and Confederate navies played in the Civil War, among other topics. As I'm sure many of our listeners know, my guest James McPherson is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Battle Cry of Freedom. He is also Professor Emeritus of History at Princeton University. So, let's pick up where we left off in part one. Now, Uh, The United States was a full year ahead of the Army in basically desegregating the service. The Union Navy started bringing ex-slaves and freedmen into the Navy in 1862. Am I right about that? Some even earlier than that, in 1861. Do you have an explanation for that? It seems so so wild. I mean, it's so out of the blue. And again, one of those interesting facts that you point out in the book. Well, the uh, Merchant Marine and uh, the Union Navy had always had some black sailors, whereas the state militias, which were originally in the, in the regular United States Army, banned black uh, soldiers. So the Navy had a long tradition of having black sailors, uh, and so did the Merchant Marine. In that respect, uh, the precedent already existed for the uh, Union Navy during the war to enlist black sailors, including quite a few who were former slaves, who escaped from their homes in, in the Confederacy to uh, Union naval ships uh, patrolling offshore or on the rivers. And uh, Secretary of the Navy Wells made the decision to support of the, of the Lincoln administration early in the war to um, allow the, uh, any ex-slaves or free blacks who wanted to enlist in the Navy to do so. And, you know, in your book, you, you cite numerous testimonials of white naval officers commending their ability to, to stay calm under fire, their ability to do what they were told. And yet it took the Army, you know, I think it was 1860, certainly after the emancipation before the army began to introduce black regiments, always commanded by white officers. But, and I just find it fascinating that they integrated so much sooner and so willingly. In your research of, for the book, do you have any instances where racial tensions blew up on board the ship? Uh, I, I didn't see any, but uh, perhaps you found some. Well, there were occasional uh fights and um, arguments uh, on the naval crew, but I think the sailors realized that they they were all crowded together on shipboard and they needed to get along with each other. And so there there were relatively few incidents and, and no really serious examples of racial strife on Union ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really quite remarkable, but I think it's because, in part, because... Uh, there is a long tradition of 
going back to the British and, and other European navies uh, the, the, of uh, the enlisted personnel in, in a, on a ship came from the lowest strata of society in the British Navy. So the, the fact that uh, a number of Union sailors, as many as, um, maybe almost as many as 20% of the naval personnel on Union Navy ships, 15 to 20%, they came from the lowest strata of society, but so did the white sailors. And uh, I think there was a kind of tradition of acceptance and recognition of that fact. Uh, there was probably a greater distance between the officers and the enlisted personnel in the Navy than there was in the Army. So that could, I mean, there were no black naval officers. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago that the black soldiers in the Civil War were commanded by white officers. Well, black naval personnel, of course, were also commanded by white officers. And by the end of the war, there were a handful of black army officers, no higher than lieutenant, but there were never any black naval officers in the Civil War. Can you comment on the role of the U.S. Marines as an adjunct service of the Navy? The Marine Corps of the Civil War era was not quite the, the same as the Marine Corps that we're familiar with today. Basically, Marines were part of the Navy and they served on shipboard. They were kind of the military police of the shipboard, and if uh, naval ships, as they frequently did in that era, the ship would come alongside an enemy ship and then and board uh, to capture the enemy ship, and the Marines would climb up into the, the shrouds of, of the ship and, and fire their rifles at the personnel on the other ship. But the, the Marine Corps of the Civil War era served almost exclusively on shipboard. There were a couple of examples. Very late in the war, the attack on Fort Fisher, the Marines actually, along with some sailors, attacked one corner of Fort Fisher in, in January of 1865. But for the most part, they just served on shipboard. I was wondering, though, like, for example, the riverboats. They were constantly being preyed upon by Confederate snipers. If they were doing river duty, would they go ashore to clean out the, the, the riverbank so that they could pass, or they were strictly uh, relegated to on-ship duties? Well, there was no uh, official United States Marines on the uh, riverboat Navy uh, in okay. the Western Rivers. Mm -hmm. But in 1862, the War Department actually... Uh, created a Marine Brigade headed by uh, a guy named Ellett, Charles Ellett, who uh, had developed uh, theories about creating riverboats as rams to ram enemy ships. And he managed to do that in the Battle of Memphis and in a couple of other battles in 1862. And he also came up with this idea of using these uh, ram ships to also go after guerrillas that infested the riverbanks in the western rivers from 1862 on through the end of the war. But they were not part of the official Marine Corps. They were basically volunteer personnel on board these ram boats, and it was called Ellet's Marine Brigade. 
but uh, Marine just meant that they operated on water. They were not part of the official uh, Marine Corps, and they they did land and go after these guerrillas. The guerrillas would wheel up artillery to the riverbanks, fire on Union ships. Uh, Ellis Marine Brigade would go after them. Uh, they would fire on the guerrillas from the ships with their larger guns, and then if the guerrillas uh, rode off on horseback, most of them were mounted, into the interior, they would land uh, on the riverbank and go after them because they carried horses on board these ships as well. Now, explain the profound, and I use that word carefully, uh, repercussions of the victory at Mobile Bay in 1864 uh, for our listeners, because I think it it really testifies to, again, uh, the role the Navy played in uh, helping to win the war. Well, Mobile was one of the principal blockade-running ports uh, of the Confederacy, especially after New Orleans was captured uh, in April of 1862. A lot of Confederate blockade or a lot of blockade runners came in and out of Mobile. After he had captured New Orleans, Farragut wanted to go after Mobile and do the same there, close it down, and maybe even capture the city of Mobile, but at least close the uh, port. Mobile Bay is a large sort of inland body uh, of water. The city of Mobile is 30 miles from the entrance to the harbor. And what Farragut wanted to do was close uh, the port of Mobile by gaining control of Mobile Bay. The Navy Department uh, wanted him instead, after he captured New Orleans, to take his fleet up the Mississippi River and try to uh, close the Mississippi River to the Confederacy. That eventually did happen the next year, although it was not under it was not with Farragut ships, but with uh, River Navy. Then, after uh, capturing Vicksburg in July of 1863, Grant wanted to go after Mobile next, and but uh, the government had a different idea of, of uh, what strategy ought to be, and so it wasn't until 1864 that the Navy Department turned Farragut loose. So he put together a fleet to fight his way through the fortifications. There were three forts protecting the Mobile Bay. And Farragut, uh, not only did the, the Confederates have a small fleet in Mobile Bay to contest Farragut's attack there, but they, one of the ships was a giant ironclad that they had built a CSS uh, Tennessee. Farragut by then had some ironclads as well. Uh, and he and the Confederates also s- strung a, uh, uh, a row of so-called torpedoes, naval mines, but they were called torpedoes in the Civil War, across the entrance to Mobile Bay. Uh, Farragut knew about these, uh, but hoped to um, get through the opening that the Confederates had left in this torpedo field, this minefield, that the blockade runners could go through. Farragut uh, uh, took his fleet past uh, the forts. Fort Morgan was the largest one. The Confederate um, torpedoes blew up one of the ironclads with the loss of uh, virtually the entire crew. And that's when uh, the whole fleet came to a halt uh, at the entrance to Mobile Bay uh, when the um, USS Tecumseh was uh, sunk by this torpedo at the mouth of Mobile Bay. 
And uh, Farragut uh, was facing the possibility that he would fail in this attack uh, to gain control of the bay and close down the port of Mobile. And that's when he uttered the memorable phrase, or at least allegedly uttered the memorable phrase, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Uh, and <laughs> and, and uh, he, he did take his own gun, his own uh, flagship, uh, the USS Hartford, which is which is was his flagship for the entire war, uh, to the head of the fleet and uh, made his way through the minefield uh, successfully, uh, and got into the interior of Mobile Bay and there uh, took on the Confederate fleet, including the uh, giant uh, uh, CSS Tennessee, and eventually uh, several of the Union ships rammed the Tennessee uh, and forced it to surrender. This was important not only in the sense that it closed Mobile to blockade runners, uh, which was an important achievement, but it was also um, it, it was also a, a Union victory at a time when the war was not going very well for the Union forces. Grant's campaign against Richmond had come to uh, uh, to a halt uh, at Petersburg. Uh, Sherman's campaign against Atlanta looked like it was stymied in the summer of 1864. Uh, war weariness and uh, uh, demands for maybe a negotiated peace with the Confederacy were growing stronger in the North during this summer of heavy casualties and apparent uh, lack of progress. This came at a decisive moment, early August 1864, uh, to pump up Northern morale again. So it was not only a an important strategic victory in the fa- in the sense that it closed down Mobile to blockade runners, but it was an important political and symbolic victory and morale booster for the Union cause. There's that you know the, obviously the famous moment where Lincoln uh, uh, wrote a letter to all of his cabinet officers, asked them to sign it on sight unseen, and essentially said, uh, uh, "I'm going down. I'm going to lose." I want everybody to faithfully execute their duties, but be prepared for the fact that uh, not only will I lose in November uh, my reelection bid, but it's probably likely that the South will succeed in getting a negotiated peace. My question had to do with the what you answered was a significant the political significance of Mobile Bay, uh, uh, coupled with uh, the uh, Sherman's victory in Atlanta that essentially turned the tide. That's quite right. And uh, in a way, the the capture of Mobile Bay by Farragut and the heroics that were associated with that was the first significant Union military victory in 1864. Being the first was uh, was its importance. Then, then Sherman captured Atlanta, Sheridan won some uh, victories in the Shenandoah Valley and turned the war around. But it was Farragut and Mobile Bay that started that process. Right. I'd like you to see if you could list some of the firsts that the Navy ushered into modern warfare. In your closing chapter, you detail uh, several innovations, which we, of course, today take completely for granted. But back in the day, they were borderline revolutionary. Do you mind uh, ticking off some of the firsts? Well, we can even go back before the Civil War for some of the first. The, the most important involved 
the uh, steam power. Uh, the Navy was in the process of converting from sail to steam uh, as early as the 1840s and 1850s, but the Civil War hugely advanced that process. The first um, propeller-driven steamship also dated from the 1840s. That was the Princeton, the USS Princeton. But the Civil War advanced that uh, process as well. The development of uh, so-called torpedoes or mines, that was really a Confederate innovation during the Civil War. They mined rivers and harbors. The Union developed mine sweeping, uh, mine sweepers to deal with the, the danger of the mines. The Confederates actually, Confederate uh, mines, so-called torpedoes, sunk or damaged uh, some uh, 47 Union ships uh, during the Civil War, but the minesweepers uh, and the development of a successful minesweeping technique managed to uh, reduce that for, for, uh, to much less than it might have been. Uh, the development of uh, ironclads, of course, is the most famous innovation, and that uh, was uh, something that both the Union and Confederate navies did. One of the important uh, aspects of the monitor was the turret that mounted big guns, 11-inch guns in the turrets, uh, and that became the essential form of armament of uh, modern battleships uh, and, and other naval ships uh, as well. So steam power, iron armor, turrets, uh, mines, uh, they were all uh, so, uh, the screw-driven ships as, instead of path wheels, the uh, propeller-driven ships, uh, were all innovations that uh, if they didn't first come during the Civil War, they certainly uh, were focused on the Civil War and became characteristic of the navies during the war. One of my favorites is the periscope. We we obviously associate it with submarines, but you t you say that the first known use of a periscope had nothing to do with submarines at all, which again was another innovation, albeit a Confederate innovation. Can you describe briefly what that the use of that periscope entailed? Well, the uh, the periscope uh, was on ironclads, uh, so that the captain of the ironclad or the officer could see outside the ship because the ship was enclosed in iron. Both the Confederates and the Union did that with, with uh, some of their ironclads. Uh, another innovation that I forgot to mention a moment ago, though you, you just mentioned, the Confederate submarine that uh, actually sank a Union warship off Charleston Harbor, uh, the C.S. Hunley, or the H.L. Hunley, I should say, uh, was the first uh, true submarine. Uh, and it it uh, sank uh, the USS Housatonic, a sloop of war, as part of the uh, Union blockade uh, fleet outside of Charleston Harbor in February of 1864. And of course, the submarine eventually became the principal or one of the principal weapons of modern navies. Well, again, I mean, it seems to me that necessity breeds all kinds of amazing, you know. Uh, inventions uh, primarily because they have to <laughs> they have to solve these problems because of the, the the gravity of the situation demands new new solutions to these seemingly unbelievably complex uh, problems of uh, of uh, you know moving so many men I mean truly a modern war in all sorts of ways and and uh, certainly uh, highlighted by these these innovations. You mentioned in your conclusion many, many significant 
statistics. And uh, I was going to ask you to probably maybe to read from the book about it, but I have some of them written down. If I might tick some of them off, and then you could you could comment. Is that is that okay? Sure. Well, you you mentioned first that the Civil War cost the Union government six point eight billion dollars, which who knows what that dollar amount is today. It certainly was a gigantic amount of money then. The Navy cost $587 million, which is basically a tenth of the cost of land operations. Yet you make, I think, the point quite clear that uh, the Navy's contribution was certainly more than 10% of the of the reason why the union ultimately triumphed, can you can you comment on that? Well, yes, I I think I would uh, I would strongly support that argument. I think uh, the success of the navy, strategic uh, accomplishments of the navy, played a, a crucial role in union victory. It was not only the uh, gaining the control of the uh, navigable rivers of the Confederacy, uh, penetrating deep into the Confederate heartland in Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. But uh, the Navy alone, uh, or in conjunction with uh, Army operations, combined operations, uh, accomplished some of the most important strategic uh, uh, goals of the Civil War. The not only gained control of the Mississippi River and cut the western half of the Confederacy off from the rest of it, uh, but also gained control of the largest Confederate cities, New Orleans, other major Confederate cities like uh, Memphis and Nashville, Norfolk, Savannah toward the end of the war. Couldn't have couldn't have happened without the the uh, the Navy. Sometimes the Navy did it all by itself. Um, as in the case of New Orleans and Memphis, uh, those the army didn't have uh, didn't have any role at all in that. So uh, and and the armies uh, couldn't have operated without the navy uh, gaining control of the supply um, communications uh, for army operations, in, especially in the western theater of the war, but. Even for Grant's uh, operations against Richmond and Petersburg in 1864 and 1865, the uh, uh, Grant was supplied by water, uh, and it was the Navy that uh, made it possible for uh, troop transports and supply ships to keep Grant's army uh, operating. Uh, so the Navy made uh, far more uh, uh, contribution to ultimate Union victory than its uh, one-tenth of, uh, or even one-twelfth, I think, if you want to get literal about it, cost of, of, the, of the war effort. Here's another statistic. Prior to the war, I don't know, maybe in the first four years prior to the war, something like 20 million bales of cotton were import, uh, were exported. After the war with the blockade, you guesstimate that between 550,000 and 1 million bales of cotton were exported. That's, that's a huge, a drastic reduction. And of course, cotton was one of the primary financial engines uh, so, you know, supporting the Confederate ability to pay for all, all the stuff that they had to import. Yes, uh, and uh, cotton was the lifeline of the Confederacy. There's no question about that. And they, there were there were basically three reasons why the cotton 
exports uh, drastically declined during the war. The most important one was, of course, the blockade. Uh, but also the Union uh, uh, forces, uh, aided by the Navy, of course, uh, the River Navy, uh, gained control of large uh, areas of, of the Confederacy from early on in the war. Uh, much of Tennessee, uh, much of Louisiana, uh, part of Mississippi. Uh, and they, so um, they, they destroyed some of the cotton crop, but also prevented that any more of it been for, from being exported from these inland areas on the rivers. And uh, then third, uh, the Confederacy converted a lot of its cotton acreage to food production uh, because uh, they, they, they couldn't import food. As a, as a consequence of the naval blockade, and therefore had to cur uh, curtail cotton production in the interest of uh, oh. of feeding their population and their armies. Uh, so um, th there was a drastic decline in in cotton, and therefore a drastic decline in the ability of the Confederacy to uh, pay for what arms and ammunition and uh, other supplies it could uh, import. Uh, with blockade runners, and uh, and that uh, cut back the Confederate ability to wage war as well. Yeah, uh, yeah this is a startling statistic, but I think uh, graphically illustrates your point. I don't know how far back you go with this statistic, but you say that prior to the war, something like 20,000 ships imported goods from Europe into the South. Once the war started, you you say that something like 8,000 blockade runners actually got through, most of whom were, you know, during the earlier stages of the war. That is that is just a gigantic uh, cut uh, right to the bone of, yep. uh, of everything that the South needed. What I do is make the point that in order to ev uh, evaluate the success or effectiveness of the blockade, it's uh, it's not uh, enough just to say that uh, five out of six blockade runners got through, because uh, uh, the, it's it's really how many would have gotten through in the absence of a blockade, and that's where the statistic of um, of twenty thousand ships in the four years just prior to the war clearing southern ports. Uh, and during the war, uh, even if 8,000 got through, that is a drastic reduction. And those 8,000 that did get through uh, were much uh, had a much uh, smaller uh, tonnage capacity than the peacetime ships that went in and out of southern ports. Right, and you, and you mentioned what I think this is a crucial uh, a crucial fact is that a lot of that heavy machinery. For example, railroad iron and 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 heavy machinery for for the railroads was effectively shut off, which I think helped to collapse the the, the entire southern uh, rail system and and deprive it of the ability to even have internal lines of not just uh, supply but of communication, uh, just completely disrupting you know disrupting their ability to transfer men and and material uh, in the interior, which is, again, uh, you know, not something that we might think about, uh, uh, might not be so obvious, but all you have to do is look at pictures of Atlanta and the wrecked rail yards and Sherman's neckties and all that good stuff, and you realize that uh, they, were, they, were, they were just completely uh, denuded of any capacity to, to sustain 
a, you know, a war effort. That's quite right. By 1865, the Southern Rail System had virtually collapsed. And uh, one of the important reasons for that was the inability of the Confederacy to import uh, rails from abroad. The blockade mm-hmm. runners weren't uh, big enough to um, manage such a heavy, bulky cargo. Uh, mm-hmm. So the Confederacy couldn't, they'd have to cannibalize one railroad in order to repair or keep up and sustain the operations of another. And by 1865, there was virtually, there were virtually no railroads left to cannibalize. Given what we've discussed today, it, it, it's so clear to me anyway, how significant the, the role of the Navy was in winning the war. And yet, it seems like history has not treated the naval contribution, certainly with anything like the attention or significance it does the land war. Uh, to me, this is an aberration and a failure of, of historical chronicling. Why, why do you think that is? Do you, do you think there's any explanation for that? I think so. 1920ths of the Union military personnel were Army troops. The total number of naval personnel was just over 100,000 in the Union Navy. The total number of Army troops that fought in the Union Army during the Civil War was uh, over 2 million. So you had 20 times as many Union Army veterans after the war as you did naval veterans. And the first historians of the Civil War were the veterans who wrote regimental histories, wrote their, meta, their their memoirs, gave talks to veteran associations. There was a grand army of the Republic, which became a very powerful political force in the late 19th century, but there was no grand navy of the Republic constitu- consisting of naval veterans. And so the what we might call the the first draft of the history of the Civil War was written by veterans of the Union Army and not by the Navy, and that has found its way all through the literature about the Civil War. Then, too, the the the, the big battles, the great battles that everybody recognizes: Gettysburg, Antietam, Bull Run, the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, Shiloh, Chickamauga, Chattanooga. Those were all land battles carried out by the army, and they're the ones that became famous. They also had huge casualties. 40,000 killed and wounded on both sides at Gettysburg, for example. But no naval battle had anything like the number of casualties and therefore didn't attract the kind of attention in the newspapers of the time and the consciousness of the people on both sides in the Civil War. It was those huge battles with their huge casualties that really attracted all the attention, and that attention has come down in the historical literature as well. Uh, I think uh, that helps to explain why the Navy just has not attracted, the naval war has not attracted the kind of attention that the, the land war has in, in our popular consciousness or also and also in the historical literature about the war. Well, and to repeat something you said in your summation, we certainly got a bang for our buck. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The 112th of the budget of the Civil War that went to the Navy, they got their money's worth out of that, mm-hmm. that's for sure. I'd like to, before we close, I'd like you to ruminate for a moment on this, which is if there's one enduring image or 
idea or perception uh, that you've that we've covered today that you'd like to leave our audience with as a as a kind of a reminder or at least as a signature part of our discussion. Can you think of anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with as a parting thought about our program today and and its significance? Well, I think it would just be what we've reiterated in the course of our discussion, that despite their relatively small size compared to the overall uh, numbers who fought in the Civil War, and despite the image of the Civil War uh, that's associated with battles like Gettysburg and uh, Bull Run and Chickamauga and so on, in the end, some of the greatest strategic contributions especially on the Union side, to success and ultimate victory in the war are associated with the Navy. I concluded the book by saying it would be too strong to say that the Union Navy won the war, but I would stand by my statement that the Union could not have won the war without the contributions of the Union Navy. And that's the that's the thought that I think I'd like to leave our listeners with. And when they think about why the North won the Civil War, keep in mind that the contributions of the Navy are a large part of the explanation of the answer to that question. Yeah, have a have a consciousness of combined operations, so to speak. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's another innovation from the Civil War was the combined operations of the Army and the Navy operating together in campaigns like Vicksburg, for example, uh, the campaign that uh, closed down Wilmington as the port, as the uh, ultimate blockade running port in the uh, last months of the Civil War, and other combined operations where, where the Army and the Navy uh, operated together, sometimes the Blue Water Navy as at Fort Fisher and sometimes the uh, Brown Water Navy as at Vicksburg. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, James McPherson, for an enlightening and insightful discussion about the Union Confederate Navies during the Civil War. Thank you. And before we leave you today... I would again like to remind our listeners to listen to episodes 102 and 103 of Uncovering the Civil War, where we discuss the dangerous task of raising the Confederate ironclad CSS Georgia from the bottom of the Savannah River with the U.S. Navy's elite diving team, and a follow-up discussion with the leaders of the 10-person Marine Archaeology team responsible for curating the artifacts the Navy divers discovered. There are two really interesting programs here that I believe would add depth to our discussion today. Also, if you are enjoying our program, please leave us a review. We would love to know your thoughts. And if you have a Civil War topic you'd like us to uncover, you can always reach us via our website, uncoveringthecivilwar.com. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners for taking the time and having the curiosity to listen to another episode of Uncovering the Civil War. Please come back again. Until then, be safe and do good. This has been Uncovering the Civil War with your host, Antonio Elmale. 
For more information about our podcast, please visit uncoveringthecivilwar.com. This podcast is produced by Antonio L. Molly, Chandra Years, and Joe Marsh. Music by Andrew L. Molly. This podcast is the sole property of Antonio L. Molly. Copyright 2018. No portion of this podcast may be reproduced, transmitted, sold, edited, broadcast, or reposted on the internet without express written permission of the owner.